Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. Hello, and thank you for joining the Empathy Edge podcast. I'm your host, Maria Ross, and I'm thrilled you're here to hear from leaders of brands, cultures, and teams who are leading with genuine empathy and finding tremendous success. Today, we're going to look at psychological safety as a factor to building a high-performance team and company and why purpose-driven companies outperform in the market. We're also going to talk about how to activate your employees to align and buy into purpose and mission. My guest today is Susan Hunt-Stevens. She's the founder and CEO of WeSpire, an award-winning employee experience technology platform focused on engaging people in purpose-driven initiatives, ranging from sustainability to social impact, holistic well-being, and inclusive cultures. She founded WeSpire to use her digital behavior change expertise to help people embrace healthier and more sustainable lifestyles after her son was diagnosed with serious food allergies. She was named an EY Entrepreneur of the Year for New England, a Boston Business Journal Woman of Influence, and to the Environmental Leader 100 list. Prior to WeSpire, she spent nine years at the New York Times Company, most recently as SVP General Manager for Boston.com, a $60 million digital media division. I was so excited to talk to Susan about the concept of psychological safety, which is probably something looked at even softer than the topic of empathy. But the data and the information that Susan and her company have gathered around the correlation between psychologically safe workplaces and cultures and the performance and innovation of those teams will astound you. Stay tuned for a great conversation. Welcome, Susan, to the Empathy Edge podcast. I am so happy to have you here as the CEO of a very innovative company that I can't wait to dig into. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me today. So we talked a little bit in the intro about the work that WeSpire does for activating cultures. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what you do and what your clients are looking to achieve? And just in general, you know, so much of your focus is around purpose-driven companies. So what's behind that in terms of why you believe and as a company, you believe that purpose-driven companies can outperform in the market? Yeah. So fortunately, I've been blessed that a lot of people have done the research to understand the impact that purpose has on companies, companies with a strong sense of purpose who act on that purpose, that being a very important one-two yes. punch, <laughs> outperform by 42% companies that have a stated purpose, but don't act on it very mm-hmm. consistently. And companies who don't have a purpose and therefore obviously are not acting on it actually underperform by 42%, which is really interesting. So really, really significant business benefits come from having a real sense of purpose. I think 
what we see and what we do is we operate at this intersection where companies know that they either want to have a purpose or already have a purpose, but are often struggling with how to activate that purpose with their employees specifically. How and what do we want our employees to do to bring purpose into how they make decisions, how they behave, how they treat each other, how they think about the future, how they do strategy, product development, vendor relations, you know, how do we think about our, our purpose in that? And I just feel very blessed that we've been on the front lines for 10 years of helping companies in this journey. And in some cases we meet them because they're forward thinking and they I've been doing this for a while and I just want to take it to the next level. In other cases, they are literally just getting started and aren't even sure exactly what to do. They just know they need to do something. Right. And it's so funny because as part of my brand strategy work with clients, part of that is often a mission or a vision or a purpose statement of some sort. And people think, well, why why is that sort of part of the brand strategy? It's part of the brand strategy, not for that marketing veneer of, oh, that looks really pretty on our website or really nice on our walls. But I loved, I think I shared this with you when we spoke pre-call on this podcast, I had this wonderful CEO of a tech company, very left brain thinker. So I was shocked when in the middle of a brand workshop, he said, we need to make sure we articulate this purpose statement right so we can use it to make daily decisions. Like in our meetings, in our, like when when we're faced with a decision, the litmus test is our purpose statement. And I just, I wanted to hug him because I was like, that's exactly it. You've got to put it into action. It's not just this pretty little phrase. And, you know, I've even worked with other clients and you probably have too, where you ask them what their mission is or their purpose and they're looking on the website and I'm like, okay, so clearly it's not working for you. If you have to go back to your own website to see what your mission statement actually is. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. It's, about, it's about making it a useful construct to everyday decision-making. So it sounds like that's what the platform enables your clients to do is not only articulate that purpose, but then how, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, what are the behaviors day? that we are looking for our employees? What are the actions that we want them to take? to further this purpose. The one thing that I really hone in on in the work that we do, and that I think is a really important work, is really understanding in some ways the difference between purpose and mission. And, mm-hmm. and that is I think something we should. people sometimes yes, step back. That. And yeah. one of the things that I think is important to understand is that a purpose is essentially, why do we exist besides making money? Yes. You know, what is it that we are really trying to do here? And purposes that really inspire and attract employees, retain employees are those that are really trying to tackle some big problem that has some sort of usually social or environmental or other, you know, impact component to it. Mm -hmm. And so I think where I've seen purpose statements and purposes go a little awry, frankly, is when, you know, nobody gets excited and feels like they're committing to something bigger themselves if their purpose is to dominate a market. Exactly. You know, that, that's <laughs> like it. it yeah. Really? You know, and so many, if you look at a mission statements and things that are about dominating a market or mm-hmm. providing outstanding service and not that those are bad things, you know, you want right. to be successful, you want to provide great service, 
but what problem are you solving? Why do you exist? You know, right. and, and how does you existing make the world a better place? And I think when you can get into that and really articulate that as a purpose for an organization, mm-hmm. that's when an organization truly comes alive. But then your challenge is, okay, and how do I make it so that when employees show up each and every day, it feels different? Because we have this purpose in our lives. Because if you take two, let's just pick consumer packaged goods businesses, Mm -hmm. and one has a very, very deep purpose for why they exist, and the other is really focused on dominating markets or profit returning shareholder profits and, you know, all those things. And just that, I will bet you that the one on the right will outperform Mm-hmm. you know, the one that has the purpose statement, the one that has, has a more, right. you know, market business revenue driven, statement, yeah, revenue, revenue driven, driven. market mm-hmm. driven, unless not the one that has the purpose statement doesn't actually have their employees think differently or do things differently or behave differently mm-hmm. as a result of that purpose. If it's just language on a website, to your point, it doesn't make a difference. And yet that's hard. Mm-hmm. How does my brand manager for this product act, behave, and think in a purpose-driven way differently mm-hmm. than a brand manager over at, and, and that's where, um, frankly, the rubber hits the road. That's where we've seen companies stumble and struggle. Some will get really ahead on the marketing side and not mm-hmm. bring their culture with them. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. And they need help. The other part is if they're big companies, scaling activation is really challenging because a lot of the times the things they've done historically to build culture and activate culture and purpose has been in-person, off-sites, meetings, seminars, and all of this. But how do you do that with 60,000 people, 100,000 people, 130,000 people? And so that's where digital technologies, I think, have been really key. And that's one of the things that we've really been thrilled to be kind of pioneering is how do you use digital technologies to really activate purpose in these different pro-social impact oriented Mm -hmm. areas so that everybody feels like their job is creating a better working world. Yeah. And I thought that's such an important point because I just had this discussion with a, with a social enterprise that, you know, it's so close to the heart of the founders and why they started the company of their mission. Right. And what do you do as you scale and grow when when employees get further and further away from the initial founding of the company or from the founders themselves? You know, you you have that happens a lot in Silicon Valley here, where you know there might be some noble reasons why a company's developed a technology company. And that really works when it's 12 people working in the same room together with the founder, right? But what do you do when you're distributed all over the world? And to your point, you know, now you have 5,000 employees and some of them may have never met the founder or met mm-hmm. the CEO. And so what do you do to activate that? Can you elaborate a little bit more and give us an example of how digital technology can help with that and keep everyone connected to purpose? Absolutely. So I'll give an example of a company that's really focusing on creating an inclusive culture and that part of their purpose is to ensure equity, you know, representation at all levels and doing doing all of these things. And yet oftentimes companies struggle. They know that's what they want to do. They know that's part of being a purpose-driven organization. And yet, you know, particularly what do in we tech, do? Yeah. you know, what do we do? And so where that has, uh, what we work on is, okay, what is standing in the way of equity? What is standing in the way of inclusivity? 
And what we have found in a lot of the work that we do is it gets back to this concept of psychological safety. And what's fascinating is that Google did two years of research on something called Project Aristotle and found that psychological safety was the key thing around high-performing teams. Right. We've been doing work on what drives success of, uh, you know, in, in organizations from an equity and inclusive standpoint. And guess what? It's psychological safety. So mm-hmm. companies and individuals with high levels of psychological safety are more likely to retain, perform, move up. And so we've done a lot of work to help companies educate their employees on what kind of policies and practices can support psychological safety erode psychological safety, and then what behaviors that happen in every meeting, interaction, you know, whether large or small, that can help drive psychological safety or reduce psychological safety. Just as an example, we found in one company that one of the things that hurt psychological safety were in some employees and helped it with others were after our informal social gatherings. Mm-hmm. Very important driver of psychological safety, but for those people whose schedules didn't permit or who felt very socially awkward in those kinds of situations or whatever, it actually hurts psychological safety. So the answer isn't don't stop doing informal after hour events. The answer mm-hmm. is find ways to add events during breakfast or during lunch and things like that that might work for people with different schedules or who don't want to be around alcohol or, you know, mm-hmm. and give different paths to that same experience rather than, you know, than saying, oh, okay, well, because it hurts some, we're not going to do it at all. Figure out a way to do that. So right. that's a policy or a practice. A behavior would be something like being interrupted in a meeting. And so what do you do? You teach people to notice interruptions, to stop conversations and let the person who was interrupted be able to speak. You know, that's a behavior. So we work with with both, help identify policies and practices, but more importantly, help change the behaviors. Well, and that's what inclusion really is. And that's, you know, when I when I touched on that in the book around empathy, I mean, that's the idea of thinking about what the experience is like from someone else's point of view and not just... I like happy hours, so let's make a happy hour every Friday, and that's how everyone will bond and feel safe. But it's, you know, what about the introverts? What about those that have to get back to their family? That's where the role of empathy comes into all of this. Absolutely. Is we have to be looking at this from the other, from other people's perspectives. And it doesn't mean we, like you said, it doesn't mean we have to stop doing one thing. It means we have to make sure we're, we're considering other points of view as we make decisions around practices and habits that we do as a culture to bring everyone together. So I want to take a step back for those that might not really get what psychological safety is. Do you have a good definition for us? Sure. It's the ability to bring your whole self to work without the fear of being humiliated, punished, embarrassed, or not fitting in. It's essentially you know, the, the ability for you to be you at work. And feel like that is respected and valued and appreciated. Uh, and companies that can assess psychological safety by asking, um, essentially on a scale, the answer to seven, you know, different questions. I won't go into all seven of them, but right. they touch on everything from, you know, it's okay to make a mistake to people aren't rejected for being different to it's okay to take a risk. And so you can look at your strengths and weaknesses across all seven attributes and then, and then look at 
you know, across those seven attributes, do we have people um, and have various hypotheses around people who feel much safer or less safer on these attributes? And so you look at how do women feel across these seven attributes? How do people who are younger or older or who've been at the company longer or not, or who are in different countries or may have English as a second language? And you can find where your strengths really are and where there's opportunities to improve safety. I think this is such an undervalued issue in terms of operational performance. And you know, it's it's why I've long espoused why brand and culture are two sides of the same coin. Because number one, it's got to start from the inside out. You can't just pretend to be something to the outside world if you're not actually backing that up. But number two, internally, when things are not going right, like when sales are slipping or launch dates are missed, or you know, teams are dysfunctional. It's such an under, you know, what happens oftentimes is, is executive management will throw more money at the problem, right? Oh, sales are lagging, so we need to hire more salespeople or, or it's because marketing's not working, so let's replace the marketing lead or, you know, it's all these other symptoms that, or that they think they're solving, they think they're curing the illness and it could be an issue of the relationships of the teams working together and, and at the heart of it could be people just not wanting to bring their best work to work because they don't feel like they're seen, heard, and valued. And so Absolutely. they are making mistakes. They are, you know, we, we've seen the costs of disengagement through many studies from Gallup and other places, but, you know, increased absenteeism, increased errors, all of those things kind of relate back to this aspect of, do I feel like I belong here? And do I feel like I'm seen, heard, and valued? Absolutely. And I think the fascinating piece on this is that it's really the last frontier of huge business improvement opportunity. We mm-hmm. have done so well on getting our websites to never go down, you know, um, to keep our hotel rooms filled and our plants efficient and mm-hmm. all of that. But people is hard. I think in general, um, <laughs> I started a company that is all about changing human behavior. Changing human behavior is hard. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's a big purpose. Yeah. It's very hard. (laughs) And so, um, and the, but it is really the greatest business opportunity there is, is to create step and leap bound improvements in culture and by that, really, you know, I would, I would say the measurement that I've seen and feel most strongly represents how a culture is doing is psychological safety. And yet it's one, if you asked, you know, every Fortune 500 CEO, you know, what's your level of psychological safety in your enterprise? 99% would be like, I have no idea. You know, right. it's only the truly, truly progressive companies who are looking at this. Now, we have satisfaction metrics, we have NPS metrics, we have retention metrics. Retention ultimately is the behavior, you know, you right. that's how it's not happy. That's exactly what happens. It's the output of yeah, not exactly. psychologically safe, right? Exactly. But, you know, this just is an area um, in general. I think this combination of impact and culture, if we really as businesses recognized and optimized for our ability to make the world a better place and to build an incredibly psychologically safe high, you know, which therefore is high performing culture. It's, I don't think there's anything that couldn't get solved in this world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I come into a lot of companies when I'm working on brand strategy and messaging projects with them. And I, purposely create a cross-functional team for that workshop where it's often like, well, they're not marketing. Why are they here? You know, I make HR a part of it because they are hiring future and 
brand ambassadors for the company. They need to bring the right people in that align with purpose. And it's funny because that's, it's almost like a Trojan horse of all these other issues get uncovered in that conversation where it's like, it's not really about our messaging. It's that we're saying things that we're not backing up, or it is that there's some angry people in that brand workshop that are really mad at marketing. And it's because of these other issues that are not about marketing's performance. And so I I joke sometimes that I feel like a brand therapist because I bring all these people together (laughs) and they're like, I thought we were here to decide what words were going on our website. And I'm like, ah, not really. We're here to talk about something bigger than that. And so, you know, I want to make a point to just, you're you're bringing up so many topics. I feel like I want to talk to you for three hours, but I know we can't. But this idea of the, the undervaluation of the role, the strategic role of human resources in the organization, where it's relegated to the department that helps prevent us from getting sued or the department that deals with employee paperwork, right? And there's that issue. Then there's also the issue because it's undervalued, they often have people in the role that are not thinking this way, that really are paper pushers. And so they're almost not seeing what's possible because they're hiring the wrong people in HR to to advance the organization and really leverage I hate to say it this way, but leverage people as an asset, like you said, as an opportunity for operational performance. What's your viewpoint on where the role of HR is going from a strategy perspective? Do you see executives more and more starting to value the role of HR, maybe understanding they don't have the right people in that role, et cetera, et cetera? So I can ask two to three questions of any leader in an organization and figure out pretty quickly whether they have what I call an HR 3.0 mindset or they're still back in HR 1.0 mindset. To your point, where it's seen as a largely administrative function and legal protection function. Yes. And, and, you know, and to do the administrative work to get us the right talent, but ultimately they're not making the decisions. They're just running the process. And they're not driving Um, the business. I think that's- They're not driving the business. They're seen as a cost center, not part of revenue um, development and growth, uh, you know. And then there are those companies who have recognized that literally their people are their most important strategic assets and are making decisions and prioritizing accordingly. And what's fascinating is that the the people leading on that HR 3.0 tend to fall, in, in my experience, in two different kind of general categories. The first are businesses where their people are interacting with customers day in and day out, and they really get it, like hospitality businesses have a very forward-thinking mindset around people, relatively speaking. The other are businesses who are in a war for very scarce, usually highly educated talent. So uh, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology, tech, you know, any place where you know, there's just not enough scientists and engineers mm-hmm. or, you know, certain types of physicians or things like that is then you see they have to get very, very sophisticated about attracting, retaining and building culture. And that might be why the tech industry in some ways has had to lead on some of these culture innovations in enterprises. It's just because it's so hard to attract and retain you know, tech mm-hmm. talent. Um, and so we've, we've had to take a more forward thinking uh, approach to this in many ways. But, you know, it's not, it's not easy. I keep saying that, but the truth is that it takes such alignment 
you can't just have a CEO who feels like people are an important asset, who goes hire somebody and calls them the chief people officer and have everything fixed. It really Mm -hmm. has to line up where managers are being held accountable for culture and for psychological safety and Mm -hmm. inclusion and diversity and all the aspects of what it takes to build and grow great teams, not just did that project ship on time? Did those marketing, you know, collateral drive the sales that we needed? Did, you know, these people hit their quotas, you know? um, And so you've got to instrument essentially in these things that are related to culture. And I think that's one of the things that's been exciting for me to both facilitate and then watch is for our customers to first start out by just saying, okay, we need to engage people and get them doing these things. But then when they start to evolve, now we start to see impact and culture being part of their goals and being impact and culture metrics because they can measure what's happening through our platform, being part of what's driving, you know, um, KPIs, um, OKRs, or even bonuses. Exactly. Making that part of the accountability and reward structure of this is how, you know, I talked about this in the empathy book where it's depending on how your company defines empathy, it could define it as belonging, psychological safety, service mindset, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's, there's different companies. They call it what they want, but they figured out how to measure it. And that is part of the hiring process. That's part of the mm-hmm. promotion process. That's part of the bonus structure is not just, did you tick all these boxes, but what about your people? Right. And and, that, part- and that's how people can find. And then you create a model that the company is serious about. This is how you find success here. Exactly. It's not just in ticking the boxes. It's, it's the people side of it too. And the most important thing is, is also to acknowledge that when you are bringing people, particularly people who've worked in other places into your organization, if you do not make them aware of what is expected, if you don't help them understand the behaviors, most people do not realize the impact of making a decision at a meeting without checking with everybody in the room. It's just how decisions have been made. And that happened starting probably when they were in fifth grade in their first group project, you know, (laughs) the loudmouth ones who talk a lot, made the decisions, you know, and that's just how it got things done. And I, being one of those loudmouth ones, you know, enjoyed (laughs) that process. But it was only, you know, when I started to really understand how, what that does is create incredibly unsafe environments for people who have great ideas and Mm -hmm. have a really big interest in contributing those ideas, but are never going to be the ones that raise their hands to volunteer. And if you don't go around the room and solicit that input when a decision is being made, you're never going to get it. You know, so there's just that behavioral training that we all need that you just don't get from, you know, many places. Right. And it stifles innovation. It stifles the ability to make good business decisions. That was one of the things I was most heartened by in my research I did for the book was around the attitudes of Gen Z and millennials on workplace culture and how they are pushing for this change. And Mm -hmm. they are looking for an appreciation of cognitive diversity because it tells them the company makes smart decisions, not just that they have this beautiful pie chart of this is how many women we have and people of color, and but it's how are they harnessing those diverse points of view to make the decisions that drive the business, to make product decisions, revenue impacting decisions, 
structural decisions, process decisions. So this is the the workplace, and I probably don't have to tell you this, but this is the workplace that the incoming talent generations are demanding. And it's it's not even going to be a competitive advantage anymore. It's going to be sort of table stakes for a lot of companies to survive. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And also it's combined with those are table space from a culture standpoint. And the other thing that I think millennials and even Gen Z to a greater extent is they just expect businesses to be a force for good in this world. Yes. They, you know, and, and if they aren't, they're going to go work someplace else. It's something like 80% Mm -hmm. said it, you know, if their job did not contribute to make the world a better place, they didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. So it's on incumbent on businesses to understand, well, how, how does what we do make the world a better place? Mm-hmm. How does what we do not make the world a better place? Mm-hmm. An equally important evaluation because there, everything has pros and cons, you know, that you do. It's what are you doing to minimize those cons? What are you doing to accelerate the pros? And how are you trying to innovate out? Um, one of the companies that I've ha- been so lucky to work with, um, and it's been very public, so I can, I can share, you know, this information about, uh, is Unilever. And yes. they, you know, one of the I mentioned that, them in the book, actually, they're, they're oh, good. great success because it, I loved that the fact that they were doing this and it impacted their bottom line. So please tell Absolutely. the story. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it, so the example is that, you know, um, Unilever, you know, sells, I think billions of people a product a day. And those products take a lot of resources. And some of those resources, especially when they were first starting this journey are not great. I'll use palm oil as one of the mm-hmm. most obvious examples. And there was just no way to suddenly make a switch overnight to, you know, to eliminate palm oil or move to sustainable palm oil. They couldn't do this alone to get to where they needed to go on this journey. And so that's the other thing that I think is really important about setting purpose, activating purpose is recognizing that then to execute against those opportunities, both the problems and the the solutions, you often need to collaborate outside your own walls. Mm -hmm. And so you have to team up with others. Often in the past, you know, people that you might be considered, you know, your competitors, enemies, whatever you want to call them, to be able to come to a collective solution. And so, you know, those kinds of consortium approaches sometimes to tackling these big challenges that are on, you know, companies don't like to talk about the things that aren't good, but you have to face it and you have to tackle it. And then sometimes to really deal with it, you have to tackle it with each other. One of the other really good examples um, that I love to demonstrate to others is uh, a thing called the closed loop fund. So one of the major issues in the U.S. is our recycling infrastructure in many municipalities is not very strong. And so if you're trying to make all your product packaging recyclable, but you don't have good municipal infrastructure, how do you do that? Well, no one company can solve the problem of U.S. municipal recycling infrastructure, but companies can come together in a model. And what they did is created a fund and that fund would then be able to do financial instruments to help municipalities upgrade to have better recycling infrastructure. Oh, wow. That's great. Isn't that awesome? And so this giant problem (laughs) that benefits everybody is getting tackled by and catalyzed by one, two, three, you know, big players really thinking about what they do in a very purpose-driven way. And it benefits everyone. And what I love about that is it's taking the brand, it's caring about where the brand ends up, right? Because those companies could have stopped it like, well, we're making recyclable packaging. Yeah. 
Like we're doing what we said we were going to do. Who cares if you can't actually recycle it? Who cares it? if you can't actually act, <laughs> act on it? Right. And so <laughs> exactly. I love that there, there's meat behind their brand promise as well of caring enough to go, exactly. no, we need to do something about downstream. Exactly. What's happening. Another famous example from your backyard is um, when Levi's looked at, you know, their impact, what they realized is the biggest impact was in two places. One was how cotton is grown and changing how cotton is grown, you know, and so they did a ton of work there. But the other major impact is people washing their jeans. And so all of a sudden here, a jean company is realizing that to really lower their footprint they're going to have to change the way people wash their jeans, which mm-hmm. means they need to be thinking about what kind of washing machines they're using, what temperature they're using, how often they're using it, you know, things. Can we come up with products or ways for people to wash jeans less, mm-hmm. um, you know, or use less water when washing jeans? And so you all of a sudden find yourself, it's like, wait, no, we make jeans. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you really want to be doing this, you need yeah. to be thinking about like, not only that you make the jeans, but how people clean the jeans. Right. Where they end up too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And when I love up. that. So I'd love to, you know, folks listening, maybe sort of emphatically nodding their heads to this, leaders listening to this. But, and I know this is always the the loaded question, but where would a leader start? And depending on what role they're in, if they're a marketing leader or the, the founder of a company. So let's say they're like, we know we could be doing better with articulating our purpose and activating our employees. What are some good first steps they can take? So I think the, you, it has to start with knowing what your North Star purpose is. And if right. you if that's not crystal clear, you know, you need to start there and figure out um, what it is. And it, it, it's there somewhere. That's the thing. You just is pull it, it out of people. Like that's, that's the thing. It's there somewhere. Yeah. And usually what I, what I strongly recommend for older companies, companies that might be 50, 60, 70 years old, is go back and find your founder story. Go back and find your founder story. Because as you mentioned, you know, founders and, and tightness... I think some of the hardest things are for companies that have gotten so far away from their founding. They've been wildly successful. They're, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old, mm-hmm. but they need to go back to that founding purpose. And what, what, what was it, you know, because that might be actually still highly relevant. If not, then, then you do a giant listening tour of your customers, other stakeholders, the communities you operate in, your employees, mm-hmm. you know, it's in there and, and you'll find really what it is. Then the thing you have to do is you need to uh, recognize that to be a purpose-driven organization, you actually have to think about lots of different fronts, you know, and so I'm going to touch on a few, but there's, there's a number. So the first is what we talked about, which is, you know, the whole front on, on culture and just how is our culture and is the purpose of our people aligned with the purpose of the business? If yes, great. How do we leverage that more? If not, is it inclusive? Is it psychologically safe? Is it diverse? Um, does it have the right, you know, and, and that's where I would start is a psychological safety assessment. And, Mm -hmm. And those are, for people, I just loved watching companies see the data for the first time. I know. Because it, it's, where, it's where they go, oh. You know, it's like they all <laughs> exactly. knew there was yeah. something, but they didn't know yeah. what it was. And then they see right. it. And it's like, and then you can do something about it. So that's, right. um, 
then you have to look at your operations and you have to say, are we operating in a way that is environmentally friendly, socially responsible, you know, all those kinds of things. Because especially in this age of transparency, you cannot be a purpose-driven company who's dumping, you know, chemicals illegally in streams or hiring child labor or, Mm -hmm. you know, or even even just wasting a lot of stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. and the bar is just too high now. So looking operationally to say, are we operating in a socially responsible way and knowing where your Achilles heel is going to be. You know, if you're a tech company, e-waste is just a, if you manufacture anything, you know, it's, it, that's going to be there and you're going to have to figure that out. If what are you going to do about it? And what yeah. are you going to do about it? And how mm-hmm. are you going to deal with it? You know, if you're in some sort of consumer products, um, manufacturing packaging and plastic and waste, it's just going to be something you need to deal with. If you're in hospitality travel, there's the issues of human trafficking, you know, um, addictive behaviors, you know, those are some of the things that you're just going to have to be all over. And, and that will help you sort of piece that fix. Then the other pillar is looking at well-being, the well-being of your people, um, which is, which is tied into inclusivity. If you have a highly inclusive, highly safe culture, mental health and well-being will be much stronger. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that you, you know, you also need to really understand, you know, where are, where is our well-being? broadly for our folks, Mm -hmm. because if people aren't coming to work mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy, you're, Mm -hmm. you're going to have, you're going to have challenges. Um, Well, and this is what everyone's realizing now, why they have to be there for their employees. Absolutely. They've had to step up and be very empathetic and very understanding with all of the outside stresses that people are under right now, everything from worrying about their own health to going crazy in quarantine to now homeschooling their kids. And that has to be the context of who they are when they show up at work or for work from their home. (laughs) It's what's been interesting for us is I, uh, we've been doing some work with companies to assess psychological safety during the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. what we would expect is that psychological safety would be going down because everybody's mental health and well-being is, you know, physical safety, all of this. In many cases, it's actually been solidified and going up because the companies have realized in a crisis how much communication they need to do, how much connection they need to do, how much community building they need to do, how much clarifying they need to do. Mm-hmm. And they're doing things they should have been doing all along. They're stepping up basically because exactly. they have no choice now. It's, well, and everybody is experiencing it globally. You yes. know, there isn't a pocket of, of people who is not affected by this. Exactly. Um, you know, and the other fascinating thing is that many leaders were never home during the day to witness how their home operated and what it was like to try to school children, let alone get meals on the table, or do this. And so one of the things that I've you know, certainly heard uh, qualitatively, but we even see in the data quantitatively, is that women in particular are feeling like their male managers um, and senior leadership have much more empathy around the parenting challenges now because Mm -hmm. of COVID, Um, that they've seen it more and felt it more personally. I was on a Salesforce event, a video event, and um, the CMO of Ethan Allen spoke before I did. And he talked about the fact that out of all of this, he has gained a new appreciation and more empathy towards working moms. And not that he was callous to them before, but he just, he never knew. He never really knew 
what it was like. And he just seeing the impact on the people on his team, the impact in his own family, it's, it's changing. It's adding to his leadership style of, of really having that empathy for, wow, now I've been in the trenches with you and I Mm -hmm. see it and I can't Mm -hmm. unsee it after that. So, and I, I, you know, um, and what you're seeing is companies, um, particularly some of the Silicon Valley leaders really doing like Salesforce just added six weeks of paid leave for for parents parents during this, which, you know, is going to send, you know, competitive vibes, shall we say out to many other places. And, you know, I'm relieved that these are the kinds of changes, not that it wasn't fun to have ping pong, um, you know, and all those other things as, you know, distractions and, Mm -hmm. and that was spread, but that wasn't the important stuff. The important things that frankly, some of the the technology companies are leading on in culture is the 16 week parental leave or more Mm -hmm. the, you know, um, uh, and now I'm excited that there's much greater emphasis on both gender and racial equity. Um, you know, we don't have great numbers in the tech industry, um, yes. but you know, I think I'm seeing the most concerted effort to try to change that than I've seen in my entire career. Yeah, I think everyone's talking about it now. Everyone's eyes are open. If you do nothing now, you've got your head in the sand. Exactly with, with that aspect, um, but you've got to activate it, and you've that's got to where activate it. Exactly. you've got to act on it, and mm-hmm. that is that is then you know of course then the question is well what do we do you know um, and you know in in the area of inclusivity and psychological safety the first is okay is your culture psychologically safe if you don't know the answer to that find out quickly then based on that start to do the understand what's affecting it you know, policies and practice wise and start Mm -hmm. to address those and what's impacting it behavior wise and start addressing that and setting those cultural norms and those behavioral norms to create a psychologically safe workplace. This is all such good stuff. I just want to close quickly. You are a leader, you are a CEO, and can you share maybe one or two habits or practices that you do to stay in touch with where your teams are and your people are, maybe some personal practice or some aspect of your leadership style or how you run meetings that helps you create that environment of psychological safety and also be very empathetic to different needs and different motivations. So we have a practice at our all hands that we are only able to do because we're small still. It'll be interesting to see how this practice scales, but we actually, we start every all hand with a moment for mission, um, you know, and what, and have a customer story of what they're doing or something about it to really put our mission front and center. Um, so that every meeting, we start every board meeting that way. We start, you know, so any meeting we do basically. I love that. Yeah. Then right after that, we actually have a really quick round robin of all our team members of highs, lows, and big rocks. And you don't have to say a high or a low or, you know, uh, kind of thing. Most people do. It's very quick, but it, it's fascinating because some of them are personal, some of them are professional. You know, it's really where people are. But what it is, is it's acknowledging we all have highs, we all have lows, we all have a big rock, and they're all different and different things. 
you know, and so there's been times where somebody chooses for their high to share that they got engaged, um, you know, um, and there's times when somebody's talking about a low and it has to do with a medical diagnosis, you know, that they feel safe enough to share to the whole team. But I think that mm-hmm. practice mm-hmm. has certainly built as a much stronger sense of psychological safety within the mm-hmm. team. I think the other practice that has been kind of a fun plug-in that we added during the pandemic um, that for me has been so fun and helpful is it's this little Slack essentially plug-in and it matches you with somebody in the company to do a social 30 minutes that day. And I will be the first to say I'm both highly social, but also can very easily let, you know, the tasks get in the way of the relationships um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and especially virtually. And so this reminder and this matching system to meet up for people's donut, wherever, you know, Mm -hmm. um, whatever you do it has been a really good way as the CEO to be matched, to have what is therefore an expectation. It's a purely social conversation Mm -hmm. because, you know, as a CEO, when you say, Hey, I'd like to meet with you, people panic, you know, Never like, good. Oh God, yeah. I'm fired. <laughs> like what happened? You know, yeah. and things like that. As much as you can be the nicest person on earth when the CEO yeah. is like, can we have a meeting? And so I always had to preface when I wanted to do these before with a, right. I just want to get, say how you're doing. I just yeah. want to have coffee. Like, I There's swear, no agenda. I'm, I'm no not anything. inviting you into my den. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so by having it all be donut matchups, nobody's scared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. It reminds me of a children's book I read to my son about the smiley shark and he tries to make friends under the ocean, but everyone's scared of his teeth every time he smiles. <laughs> that reminds me of that. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, so. I mean, I think those are two really great activities and you know, from my lens of, of empathy on this, it, it's so important to have that context of each other before you get down to business, because then it explains so much of people's reactions or what they say during the meeting. So once you know they're having this low or they're having this whatever, you, you might have a little bit more grace and patience with the person if they're, they have a short fuse when you recommend your idea in a meeting. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that information, everybody just walks around thinking everyone's being horrible to each other. So I love this idea of sort of letting our guard down and being vulnerable and seeing each other as human beings, which is really what all of this is about that we're talking about, is understanding that we as human beings have different needs. We have different motivations and we want to be purpose-driven. We don't, yes, we want to show up to work and get a paycheck, but it's more than that, that we want. And we want to know that that effort and that toil is going to something greater than ourselves. Right. And it doesn't matter what you do at the company, whether you're a, a an office cleaner or an admin or, you know, back office employee, Absolutely. you still want to we as humans want to be part of something bigger. So yeah. And to have an impact. And, and I think, you know, there, there are certainly people for whom, you know, they do not see their job as, as a way to drive impact. They see Mm -hmm. it more as a career or even Mm -hmm. a means to an end, Mm -hmm. but people who have a sense that their job has, has a purpose beyond Mm -hmm. themselves, you know, do progress from a career standpoint better and companies do make more money and therefore those people do as well. And so, you know, I think some people think it's a decision where you're picking between impact and profit. And the truth is that 
impact drives performance, drives profit, drives impact, you know, Um, and it's, it's it's just a positive cycle. It is. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insights. My pleasure. It was great to be here. I always love talking to you. And where can folks find out more about WeSpire? At WeSpire.com, W-E-S-P-I-R-E.com. Wonderful. And can folks connect with you on LinkedIn as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Susan Hunt Stevens. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Success.